This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. 80 million or one in four individuals in the U.S. receive health care through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. Medicaid agencies administer a complex web of programs. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges leaders in Medicaid navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, and welcome to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. I'm your host, Gretchen Hammer. The multi-year pandemic, our social justice reckoning, and the large-scale disruptions in people's lives have negatively been impacting people's health and well-being. There is, in fact, a crisis level among children and adolescents. They have been disconnected from systems of support, watched the adults in their lives struggle, and really are starting to understand how life-changing this experience of the pandemic has been. It has also, however, been a time of destabilization in our healthcare delivery system, and in particular, in our mental health care system. There has been a large turnover. It's been challenging to meet high volumes and to really address the complex needs that the pandemic has created, not only among children, but among families as well. So today we're going to start our conversation with a national expert, Dr. Ben Miller, the Wellbeing Trust, who will help us understand what is driving the children's behavioral health crisis. And he'll give us insights into the active national dialogue on potential solutions. After that, we'll bring it down a level and talk to two Medicaid agency leaders who are faced with meeting the needs of those that they serve every day, and in particular, meeting these additional complexities of their needs. And we'll see how we're leveraging Medicaid's capacity to drive toward an improved system of care and prevention. So let me begin by welcoming Ben Miller to Medicaid Leadership Exchange. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Gretchen. Thank you so much for having me on and for covering such an important topic. You're welcome. It's really great to have you. You're a clinical psychologist by training and have behavioral health policy expertise. In fact, we've had the chance to work together on a variety of policy opportunities. If you could help our listeners understand the scale of the mental health needs of, that we are seeing in children and how we got here. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, I don't even need to explain how big this issue is if you are a parent and have children and have experienced the last two years like most of us have. But before we get to COVID, let's just talk about before. So there's been a lot of studies that have come out recently that highlighted how poor we were doing as a nation taking care of our kids and their mental health. One study looked specifically at 2009 to 2019, and they found that high school students, more than one in three, reported these feelings of hopelessness or sadness. And in that same last decade, even again, before COVID, we saw suicide behaviors increased 36%. And when you tack on to the, these issues that we have an increased need, but yet fewer people are receiving care, it does cause for this really interesting and challenging landscape. And then COVID hit. And what we saw after COVID was this exacerbation, this multiplier effect on our youth and their mental health. And it led to things even early on in the fall of 2020, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Children's Hospital Association, and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, they declared an emergency in child and adolescent mental health. And there was good reason for that, because if you looked at their data, uh, specifically data from the Children's Hospital Association, there was over 47,000 mental health visits to emergency departments at 38 children's hospitals in the first three quarters of 2021. That is 40% higher than the year prior to that which is all kinds of cause for alarm. Red flags should be everywhere. And our parents, going back to my first point here, 
One in three of us, which is you know about 30% of the nation, reported that their children's emotional health was worse now than before the pandemic. So how did we get here? And let me just recap really quickly. I think there's really three big things here that I think stand out. Number one, we've had an ongoing fragmented, fragmented approach to how we take care of mental health. Number two, we continue to treat diseases as if it requires a diagnosis and we wait until there's a major problem before we are able to slide in and provide some assistance to our, our kids. And then third, and probably arguably the one that we could spend the most time talking about here is that we have not seen kids as having their own unique needs. And we continue to treat kids as if they're little adults, which I know is a, a bumper sticker that many of us have said for some time. So these are major, huge systemic issues that have to be addressed, but what better time to do it than now? Terrific, Ben. Thank you so much for grounding us in that, in that reality and reminding us that we faced many challenges with our youth and their mental well-being prior to the pandemic. I want to though go back to that concept of your, your three challenges of ongoing fragmentation and our tendency to wait until kids are in crisis or really struggling. So, you know, most folks think of behavioral health uh, as along a continuum, right? We have prevention and building of wellness, and then, you know, you can have some supports when maybe you face a struggle in your life. Sometimes that struggle becomes a diagnosable mental illness that requires treatment. And then there are times when we all experience crisis, but in particular youth who are going through a challenging part of their growth and development can also experience crisis. When you think across that spectrum, where, where, where are you most worried or where do you see the most opportunity for us to really improve to address the needs that we're seeing today? Hands down, Gretchen, it's in our schools. Schools are one of these places where our kids spend more time there than most of the other places in their life. They are exposed to peer groups that help socialize, um, you know, various issues with them. They're, they're exposed to education. And really, it becomes this microcosm of what they expect their future world to look like. And so I think schools are one of the best places that we can provide not only early intervention, it's just meeting people where they are. And that means that you need to have services and supports that really build resiliency and provide real help for those with, with greater challenges. And, and it's not just waiting until there's a crisis, it's being proactive and a couple of things that might look like. I mean, number one is just having a healthy school environment. We, we know for years that there's been an increased problem with bullying. We know that there have been, uh, especially certain groups, our LGBTQ plus community have been um, ostracized and really picked on more than others. So we have an opportunity to create a healthy environment in our schools that really provides for kids to, uh, to learn, but also to feel safe. Number two, we have to educate our teachers, our students. You know, we have to make sure that education and what mental health is, is brought into our curriculum. This can't just be something that we wait and we talk about in a, you know, some random health class down the road. We need to really make sure that mental health is seen as foundational to who we are, to our overall health. We're not going to learn effectively if we're worried about something. We're not going to feel good about interacting with our peers if we're feeling down. It should be just a natural part of how we approach uh, mental health in our schools or schools in general is how we talk about mental health. And so that's, that's kind of two things. But to me, I believe that that full continuum is something that we rarely will talk about. We often, to your point, which I think is a great one, we often will go to that, the extreme case. Okay, there's a child who's actively suicidal. What do we do? 
when we really want to go upstream and talk about how we do we be more proactive in taking care of our kids in the schools in their homes how do we do a better job integrating into places like pediatric settings where we know that mom and dad are often going to show up first if they have a concern about their kids so i if i had one thing that i hope folks hear from this is that we don't wait until there's a crisis to begin to to lift up and highlight the importance of mental health. Terrific. Ben, those make so much sense to me, both as a parent, as a community member, and also as a former Medicaid official. But let's focus in on that nexus between what you just prioritized and Medicaid, right? So the healthy school environment and supporting mental wellness as a foundational to who we are and to our long-term success as both human beings, but also as students, where have you seen Medicaid programs or Medicaid policies really be supportive of that? Or is there an opportunity for us to rethink that relationship between, frankly, two of the largest investments in most state budgets, which are education and Medicaid? You know, where do we, where can we bring those systems closer together? Or where have you seen uh, success stories in that work? Well, let's start with big P policy for a second, and let's just talk about in what's transpired within federal government and some of the signals that we've seen, because I do think that that is somewhat of a bellwether for what happens within our Medicaid programs. So let's just start at the top, especially with our kids. The Surgeon General put out a report highlighting that there was a crisis with our youth and that there's things that we need to do. And within that report, he highlights the importance of addressing um, kids where they are in schools. The White House put out a fact sheet on mental health. And it, again, lifted up the importance of looking at youth and to prioritize how their mental health is doing. The president in the State of the Union mentioned not only the opioid crisis, but also the importance of us getting involved in schools and the importance of us looking at mental health. We've had Congress hold almost every single committee in Congress over the last year has held a hearing on mental health. I cannot tell you because it hasn't happened the last time that happened. It's just one of these things where we should be totally um, shocked and surprised, but yet encouraged that at a federal level that this is being uh, addressed. And then just even again last week on Thursday, the president said he described the mental health of our children and he instructed the Department of Education and HHS to develop initial guidance to schools that will help them provide mental health support. To me, these are like amazing signs that we are going in the right direction. So let's get back to your question about Medicaid. So we know obviously that there are a variety of different ways to address mental health within our kids within Medicaid programs. Um, state Medicaid plans, Medicaid managed care, and even many commercial health insurers, they're regulated by federal laws that require certain minimum services and prohibit that discrimination against things like mental health coverage. And as you know better than most, Gretchen, I mean, one of the most well-known laws in, is the Early and Periodic Screening Diagnostic and Treatment, or EPSDT, which is the requirement of Medicaid. And this really requires our, our programs and our states to cover regular screenings, things like health education, or what they oftentimes refer to as anticipatory guidance, and services to address needs that are identified through screenings, even if those services are not covered in a state plan. And then we've got this federal law known as the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Uh, tie that together with the ACA, and you've got a lot of opportunity within our Medicaid plans to do something really profound for our kids. The problem in all of this is that the evidence suggests that most families still are not getting access to these services. And almost none of the evidence-based practices for preventing children's mental health conditions or even addressing family social needs 
report being sustainable through current healthcare payment policies in most places in the country. So we, it's, it's a case where we have made progress. We've seen changes in policy, yet on the ground sometimes um, it has not necessarily uh, come to fruition and been as comprehensive as we might like. Our friends at Inseparable put out a new state report card that looked at schools and mental health. And you look in there and you say, well, how do we better increase the number of mental health services that are provided in schools? Well, in many places, that's going to be an issue that Medicaid can help in and step solve. So I believe that this is an opportunity for our Medicaid agencies to really rectify some of that fragmented approach that we've taken on in the past around mental health, to think more creatively about integrating those benefits, those financial models that really do meet this moment and provide much more comprehensive solutions for our kids and their families. Terrific. Thank you so much, Ben. You know, we do call this podcast Medicaid Leadership Exchange, and, you know, you are a tremendous leader. You are, um, you have no fatigue, you have endless optimism, you, like you said, you're looking for the signs in the system that are showing us that we're making progress, but when you think about the amount of work it's going to take, and as you've, I think, appropriately described, the new relationships we're going to have to strengthen and find and build quickly so that we can meet this moment. What would you offer as advice to Medicaid leaders listening that is some of the most important sort of leadership concepts that you lean on as you continue to do this work? Well, I I take that very seriously that right now in the middle of this pandemic, we are seeing such profound issues. I take it seriously. I know many of the Medicaid directors do as well. So I've been saying very openly and honestly to anybody who will listen that this is our time to step up and be leaders in a moment that people will judge us on for the foreseeable future. They're going to look back and say, how did you address and manage our mental health during COVID? What is it that you did? Gretchen, I've sat at this computer. I've looked into the eyes of so many families that have suffered loss during the pandemic. And I take it very personally now. I I believe that it is up to us, people like you and me and the folks listening to this podcast, to really be outspoken and to take risk, to to be prudent in those risks, but to take them when they see an opportunity to do something that could be transformative. Good leaders understand that you have to be risk, you have to not be risk adverse. You actually have to pursue and chase down risk if you're going to bring about any profound change. So that's number one. You got to be uh, understand that risk is a, should be a part of your job. Number two, you have to have the vision. I mean, there are so many amazing, talented leaders out there who are able to articulate a clear vision of what good should look like in this nation. Medicaid directors are the people that we look to. They, we look to them and say, well, where are we going as a state? What are we going to be doing to take care of the folks that really are those in the most dire need right now? What's your vision? for bringing mental health much more to the forefront of your Medicaid plan. How will you do that? So taking risk, really being outspoken with your vision. And then number three, and this this to me is just um, one of those areas that I believe uh, most good leaders have really embraced is that you have to pursue it with humility. And that might be a weird thing to say to a leader, but remember there's a lot of folks out there that have a pride and have invested decades of their life in building something that just right now might not be the best thing that we need. So approaching those conversations in the spirit of humility allows for us to go much deeper on what change might look like and how we might be able to do that together, rather than this inevitable defensive posturing that sometimes a 
other people will will take just because they don't want to see that change that undermines or changes what they've been working on. So I think the three things I'll say them again, you know, number one, not being afraid of risk. Number two, having a very clear vision of where you want to go and how to articulate that vision. And then number three, approaching it all within a spirit of humility. Terrific, Ben. You know, I could listen to you all day and continue our conversation, but now it's my pleasure to introduce two Medicaid leaders in behavioral health from the state of Massachusetts and the state of Georgia. Emily Bailey from Massachusetts and Catherine Ivey are joining us to really begin the conversation about what advancing and supporting mental health for children looks like at the state operational level. I'll let them both introduce themselves and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Emily, may I start with you? Absolutely, thank you, Gretchen, and thank you for having me today. My name is Emily Bailey and my role at MassHealth, uh, which is Medicaid Authority in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is the Chief of Behavioral Health. And my responsibilities include MassHealth programs for members with behavioral health conditions, as well as being a liaison and a counterpart to other state agencies who have interest and involvement in behavioral health. Catherine. Yes, I'm Catherine Ivey, and I'm the Executive Deputy Director of the Medical Assistance Plans, and my role is in service delivery and administration, which includes behavioral health services, autism, really the range of Medicaid services. Wonderful. Well, Medicaid plays a sort of unique role in the landscape of services and supports for children and their behavioral health. In many states, Medicaid is a major source of insurance for children, and many children who may have a co-occurring mental illness or a developmental disability or delay have Medicaid as either their primary health insurance or their secondary health insurance to support their complex and unique needs. So one of the things that is important is that you all as, as behavioral health leaders really have a vision for how your program is interacting with children and families and how you're really supporting their behavioral health. So maybe we'll start with your overarching vision or the things that you're really focused on as behavioral health leaders to address the needs of the children in your state. Thank you, Gretchen. Over the period of the last two years when we've been involved in the public health emergency, We've quite honestly done a lot of listening. That was our main function during the public health emergency, listen and respond. And we that's been a terrific source of information for us. We've looked holistically at behavioral needs, whether it had to do with a diagnosis of a behavioral health um, issue or whether or not it had to do with autism or another area that we were pretty agnostic with regard to the diagnostic origin of the needs of families. To that end, we rolled out, completely rolled out telehealth with regard to all available services. And that's been very helpful. We've learned a lot of things around that. And so we can talk more about that in a minute when I give Emily a chance to respond. Thank you, Catherine. In Massachusetts, the vision and goal for behavioral health for the Medicaid population, um, for kids in particular, goes back to something called the Children's Behavioral Health Initiative that began in 2008 and 2009. And that really initiated uh, an ongoing focus on strengthening the community-based supports reimbursable through Medicaid for children and their families. And the purpose and goal of that program was really to think comprehensively about wraparound treatment services that would support children and families in the Commonwealth. 
that system of care added a number of new provider types and a number of new systems of care in the communities throughout the Commonwealth and provided intensive crisis, mobile crisis, and um, family support services. So we're really proud of that program and how that program has evolved over the years to be truly comprehensive. In the last few years, as Catherine, you were saying, it's been a it's been a game changer coming through the beginning of the pandemic and now seeing the tail end and the incredible impact um, of that tale on children's mental health and really understanding as um, Medicaid authority, what can we do to support the population who is being served by mass health? We, in our state, 40% of the children are covered by Medicaid, and we feel a very strong responsibility to making sure that those kids get the services that they need. A couple of things that we've done more recently through the pandemic in response to um, just an increase in need and an increase in need in a different way is not dissimilar to Catherine, what you were describing, listening to families and hearing what they need. How do you need your services delivered? Okay. You need them delivered differently. You need to have access to health, telehealth. You need to have access to telehealth providers at different times than we're used to having those provided. So we spent a lot of time and are currently still thinking about what are the right ways to incentivize and provide services through our provider networks in ways that are going to meet these ever-changing needs of children and families as we're sort of arising into this new world where we find ourselves post-pandemic, ongoing increase in demand and ongoing increase in acuity is what we're seeing in, in Massachusetts. And I wonder, Catherine, if you're seeing some of the similar, some, some similar things in, in Georgia. We definitely are, Emily, and in fact, that's what's really driven our our ability and and our desire to listen more to the community and listen to families about what they're what they have needed. We we also have a robust system that's an interdepartmental system, and involves um, some legislation that was passed that that has interdepartmental interdisciplinary teams that looks overall at children's system of care. And through that, we had begun really important conversations about when does the school system reach out to whom and how does that happen? And But it was, I have to tell you that during the past couple of years, our wake-up call was to really listen carefully to families about what they needed. And we found that much of the work that we had done, which was all really good work, was just the foundation for more work that we needed to do, that we still need to do. So for one of the examples that I could give right off the bat is that without the support of school on a regular basis and with children not in school, there was a, a, there was a high level of need for additional intervention and just assistance and support to parents. So we are currently finding ways to plug that hole with some available funding through the American Rescue Plan. And we have an additional service that we have had funded through that fund source. Uh, and it's behavior support aid, um, which is a paraprofessional service that hadn't been previously available in the state of Georgia. But we found that there was such a need and challenges around translating um, behavioral health and intervention plans and good best practices for families in a way that they could understand, in a way that could be modeled. So that's what we're in the process of creating now after hearing from families that they just could not do this alone. They needed a lot more support than we were previously providing to them. In your comments so far, you've really talked about how this is like a puzzle 
right? The services and as you said, Catherine, what are the providers that we could have and how are they engaging with families and how are we going to fund that and who are they connected with? So how have you all as leaders of this work kept track, if you will, of all of the relationships you needed and the partnerships? How important has it been for you to have that sort of collaborative mindset and to have an orientation toward partnership? Sometimes partnership can slow you down, but it sounds like you all have found partnerships have been critical to your success. Emily or Catherine, I'd invite either of you to respond. Gretchen, I completely agree with with your comments. Children and families' mental health are inextricably connected. The grown-ups' mental health and the kids' mental health are connected. So that's another part of the puzzle. In addition to school situations, which could exacerbate or improve symptoms or situations that are going on with kids impacting their mental health, there's a variety of other factors. If there is trauma involved, if the family or child is involved with the Child Protection Agency or in the juvenile justice system, all of these pieces have to come together and be at the table to have conversations about how we intend to impact and influence the experience of the child and the family receiving necessary both preventative all the way up through acute and crisis care depending on the circumstance. So in the Commonwealth, we um, absolutely have adopted a very strong culture of engagement, not only amongst and between and between state agencies, schools, and other um, system stakeholders, but also the provider network of behavioral health providers in, in the Commonwealth from community mental health centers to psychiatric hospitals to um, providers of addiction services, really understanding and hearing, not dissimilar to what Catherine was saying, but just listening, hearing what the experience is, not only of the families and the kids, but of the stakeholders that are trying to move people through the system or access care at the next step has been really essential for us to be part of breaking down the barriers of this interconnected system where all of the stakeholders have a really, really important piece of the of the puzzle to put together because Medicaid can only do what we can execute on, but building alliances and coalitions with like-minded stakeholders, really keeping the touchstone of how do we improve the experience and outcomes for kids' mental health has really been an invaluable part of ensuring that we're moving forward. And while I do think at times that can slow down process, but it also has helped us to get it right. It's helped us to get it right the first time. So while that might take a little longer, we've really found it invaluable to stay very closely connected to all those stakeholder groups. I couldn't agree with you more, Emily. And one of our methods to do that and one of our tactics in Georgia has been that previously we had formal groups that met monthly and there were a number of different stakeholders from different state agencies and then ultimately from provider networks, et cetera. What, what we've determined is so important over the past couple of years in the Medicaid agency is to go where those other agencies are. And I have to tell you that one upside to the, the last two years and our experience with social distancing, et cetera, has been that we have become very, very comfortable with Zoom. So where before we used to travel and meet face-to-face -face and spend probably more time than we needed to, we've been able to really jump in and participate in, in ad hoc problem solving. And we have found that to be such a respectful way 
to, to begin a relationship, kind of a deeper relationship with our partner agencies. It, it's almost like when I invite you into my home, it becomes a very personal relationship. So when we're now invited into their challenges and their struggles via team, Microsoft Teams or whatever, we can become a problem-solving partner. It's a more, it feels like it's a much more real and genuine relationship. We've done that with our um, child protection agency extensively throughout this. We've also developed a deeper relationship with our Department of Juvenile Justice. And so we have just found it to be extremely helpful to be a, a real member of the team. And that's so great to hear, Catherine, because sometimes Medicaid agencies can feel like everybody thinks we can just finance everything. Like if Medicaid would just, you know, cough it up and, and pay for it, we'd all be fine. And, and we know that not to be true, right? As you said, Emily, the system is still broken in places. The transitions aren't working, right? It's not always just a payment. And so both of you have said there's an orientation to a shared responsibility. Everybody needs to play their part, but Medicaid is coming to the table as a, as you said, a problem-solving partner. Yeah, as uh, Catherine, as you're making your comments, I, I help but feel myself agreeing with everything you said, because coming to the table, approaching the table as, a colleague and a partner in in solving a problem that we're all interested in solving, which is improving the experience and outcomes for kids and their families, especially in this time of ongoing mental health crisis, is really a game changer, sort of getting outside of the box of what is the purview or perspective of my particular role you know, in, in whatever slice of the pie I'm sort of responsible for, but coming with an open mind and really being interested and approaching conversations with a sense of openness to solutioning, even if that solutioning doesn't result in a, a different investment strategy, but really having stakeholders understand mass health. My goal is to have stakeholders in the commonwealth understand that mass health is a partner and an invested partner in working hard to think about improving kids' behavioral health, which does not always result in something changing from a reimbursement perspective, but does result in somebody at the table who's, I'm here to help. I'm here to help solve the problems. My, my team is here to help. Let's think through it together. Where are the barriers? Where are the challenges? And if there are things we can problem solve together that are related to how mass health is operating with our providers in the community, we want to, we want to hear about that. That might not always be an immediate solution, but being open and being able to listen and feeling like there is an ally and a partner, I think has gone a long way in, in our state. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Emily. And I, we were often previously seen as just a reimbursement source. But what's happened now over time is that I've really taken the opportunity, and so have my partners in this, to educate each other. So frequently, I would start out with a meeting with, wait, 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 I, I don't understand that language. Please describe to me what it is your system is doing or saying or what that means. And then they would do the same with me. And so it became not only a partnership, but it became a real system um, uh, building proposition because as soon as we really begin to understand one another's systems, the complexity of them, the requirements of them, how difficult they are sometimes to navigate, we can weave in our own solutions that we can fashion as we go. Yeah, and Catherine, you're really picking up on something Ben mentioned, which is humility, right? One of his guiding principles for leaders in this work is we've got to be humble 
the systems are so complex, right? The programs from the federal level on down to the state level to the community level are complex. And it is through the kind of humility that you just were describing, like, I'm sorry, I don't know what those words mean. Could you could you explain them to me, right? Like that kind of humility can really go um, to, to helping establish that, that collaborative partnership. The next place I wanted to explore a little is one, one part of me says we should go back and talk about when the partnerships haven't worked well so that, you know, our listeners don't believe it's always, you know, rainbows and, and balloons. But, but the other piece I want to talk about maybe that's even more critical is a worry as someone who cares a lot about children and their health and the, the health of families that could you lose momentum, right? We have a lot of momentum in this work right now because of the pandemic, right? We are still and, and, I think only beginning to really understand the impact of children's behavioral health um, from the school isolation, from the missed opportunities and things. But what are you all thinking about in terms of maintaining momentum, maintaining focus on this critical work um, when we maybe come out of the pandemic fully and people think, hey, we're through that. It's time to move on. When anybody who knows the development of children and families would know, nope, there's lingering things that we've got to continue to be attentive to, and our systems continue to need to improve. I'll start, and I I hate to continue the theme of rainbows and balloons, but I'm going to. I, I don't think that based on the past two years and what we've learned and some of the partnerships that we've developed, I don't think it's going to be possible to go back to business as usual. I just don't think anybody's going to allow that. We have achieved a certain level of understanding with each other right now and listening to parents and families and the community that that's an expectation. And once it's an expectation, you can't back away from it. The big question for all of us is going to be, how do we manage that expectation? Mm -hmm. Because none of us has enough hours in the day to do that reasonably or realistically. And so we have to, to begin to pace ourselves so that we don't lose the momentum just because we have no more energy to keep at it. But I I do think that the momentum itself is going to continue. We've also learned a lot about different authorities that we can use in Medicaid to do things differently. And that's been a wonderful challenge for, for us in Georgia. We've gotten a lot of assistance from CMS in that effort. So I do think there's a good bit of support for continuing the momentum. I couldn't agree more, Catherine, with with what you said. And the way I've been thinking about it is the consumers have a different expectation now. Medicaid or otherwise, consumers have a different expectation of how they consume and access services for their behavioral health needs and conditions. And as clinician for more than 20 years, there's nothing that more thrilled to see the system changing in that way. But that also creates a lot of challenges for us to think about how are services being delivered, how are services being accessed, and how can we maintain not only the momentum, but the service delivery in a way that's going to meet people's needs that's different than how we've been doing it today. And one of the things that we've implemented recently in Massachusetts that um, we're very proud of is something called behavioral health urgent care centers through our community mental health organizations. And it's really allowing flexibility in the way that we're reimbursing for those services for Medicaid patients to give the providers more flexibility in the method and the hours under which they're able to provide those services and also set forth some expectations on how timely people will actually be 
assess, including for psychopharmacology, which is, we all know is, is very challenging um, because there's just a shortage of providers in that, in that arena. So while the pandemic has exposed some truly epic challenges, and we absolutely need to keep our eye on the prize to continue on the advancements that we've made, it also is pushing us in Massachusetts to think about how can we get more creative uh, and how can we continue thinking ahead to uh, continue to meet the needs of people as they're going to continue to evolve? As you mentioned, Gretchen, this is an evolving situation and, and we don't really know what it's going to look like six months, a year, two years from now. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to give you one last opportunity to just share what you're most hopeful about. It can be hard when, when one goes through these difficult times and faces the challenge and has such deep concern about the children and families. But I wanted to again end with anything you're really hopeful about as you look ahead at the work your state is doing to address the needs of children and families. We have had so many opportunities to try different things and to um, engage in, in different services and different activities because of the infusion of funding over the past couple of years. And um, while I think that there's going to be a continued um, expectation in this area, I think we're, we're all gonna have to work really hard in making sure that our funders understand that those needs still continue and that they, with the rising expectation of communities and families and stakeholders, we, we really have to support this. But to that end, we also have a, a real dedication, at least in Georgia, to, um, to this issue. And we've had many, many uh, opportunities to put this in the forefront of legislators and others who have some fund sources that will continue to be available after the public health emergency is ended. And so I think we just have to keep it front and center. We have some great momentum there too. So I think we just need to continue to capitalize on it and thank them very much every step of the way. Similar experiences, Catherine, uh, uh, around a true and deep commitment, both at the state and federal level, to focus on this issue and allow um, flexibilities and allow creativity to really think creatively and outside the box on how we continue the momentum for kids and their families and meeting their needs. And, and we know, right, we all know as a healthcare system that addressing behavioral health needs early helps to impact health outcomes writ large and very broadly. So it's just very exciting to see not only the energy and excitement, but also the funding opportunities to be able to truly begin to creatively address some of those very upstream circumstances where we're trying to get services to, to kids and their families as soon as possible. Terrific. Well, that will wrap up our podcast. Um, this is an area that can very easily feel disheartening when you're deeply worried about children and families. And between the vision that Dr. Miller shared with us, Emily, Catherine, the work you've been doing at the state level, I feel perhaps more hopeful for our behavioral health systems and for the kids and families that have the chance to interact with the work that you've been doing than I do on a normal day. So I extend my gratitude, one, to your continued work, but also to the point of view that you've brought today, which is these are complex problems, but we have complex hearts and minds working on them. And we're really committed to the, to the long-term. 
uh, investment in this work. So thank you. And with that, uh, anyone listening to the podcast can continue to follow along the work of Massachusetts and Georgia and the Wellbeing Trust where Dr. Miller works and also continue to follow the work of NAMD on this topic because it's also a priority of the association. And we hope you'll catch our next podcast. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Season three is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.